This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Eric Ross Gilman, Tracy Conrad, Thomas O'Malley, Jeremy Doxey, and Beatrice Tolerico. Thank you all so, so much for being a part of making this show. And for anyone who doesn't know, these names that I just read are brand new patrons on patreon.com slash sleepy radio where you can go and support the show if it helps you get a better night's sleep and wake up more refreshed the next day. There's cool perks depending on how much you donate, but even a dollar goes a really long way. And no matter how much you donate, I'll read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So if you would like to be a part of making the sleepy podcast, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio thank you and as always the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski and the cover up for sleepy is by Gracie Kanan tonight is a special episode dedicated to a wonderful sleepy listener Natasha Fieldhouse Natasha requested and I read the old version of The Beauty and the Beast by Gabrielle Suzanne Barbeau de Villeneuve. Natasha wrote to me with a really humbling note about how the show has helped her through 
a lot of tough stuff that she's dealing with and helps her get a better night's rest. It was very, very humbling. So I want to thank you, Natasha. It really meant a lot that you reached out. And I want to thank everyone else who sends wonderful messages through Patreon and Instagram. Um, it means so much that the show really does help people. It gives me a reason to keep doing this. And just thank you. I hope I can keep helping you get a better night's rest, no matter what's going on in your life. So, for Natasha Fieldhouse, this is The Beauty and the Beast, by Gabrielle Suzanne Barbeau de Villeneuve. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow, just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes and let me read to you. Chapter One There once was a merchant. country very far from this is to be seen a great city wherein trade flourishes abundantly. It numbered amongst its citizens a merchant who succeeded in all his speculations and upon whom fortune, responding to his wishes, had always showered her fairest favors. But if he had immense wealth, he had also a great many children his family consisting of six boys and six girls. None of them were settled in life. The boys were too young to think of it, the girls too proud of their fortunes, upon which they had every reason to count on, could not easily determine upon the choice they should make. Their vanity was flattered by the attentions of the handsomest young gentleman. But a reverse of fortune which they did not at all expect, came to trouble their felicity. Their house took fire. The splendid furniture with which it was filled, the account books, the notes, gold, silver, and all the valuable stores which formed the merchant's principal wealth, were enveloped in this fatal conflagration, which was so violent that very few of the things could be saved. His first misfortune was but the forerunner of others. The father, with whom hitherto everything had prospered, lost at the same time, either by shipwreck or by pirates, all the ships he had at sea. His correspondence made him a bankrupt. His foreign agents were treacherous. In short, from the greatest opulence, he suddenly fell into the most abject poverty. He had nothing left but a small country house situated in a lonely place more than a hundred leagues from the city in which he usually resided. Impelled to seek a place of refuge from the noise and tumult, he took his family to this retired spot who were in despair at such a revolution. 
The daughters of this unfortunate merchant were especially horrified at the prospect of the life they should have to lead in this dull solitude. For some time they flattered themselves that when their father's intention became known, their lovers, who had hitherto sued in vain, would be only too happy to find they were inclined to listen to them. They imagined that the many admirers of each would be all striving to obtain the preference. They thought if they had wished only for a husband, they would obtain one, but they did not remain very long in such a delightful illusion. They had lost their greatest attractions when, like a flash of lightning, their father's splendid fortune had disappeared, and their time for choosing had departed with it. Their crowd of admirers vanished at the moment of their downfall. Their beauty was not sufficiently powerful to retain one of them. Their friends were not more generous than their lovers. From the hour they became poor, everyone, without exception, ceased to know them. Some were even cruel enough to impute their misfortunes to their own acts. Those whom the father had most obliged were his most vehement illuminators. They reported that all his calamities were brought on by his own bad conduct, his prodigality, and the foolish extravagance of himself and his children. This wretched family, therefore, could not do better than depart from a city wherein everybody took pleasure in insulting them and their misfortunes. Having no resource whatever, they shut themselves up in their country house, situated in the middle of an almost impenetrable forest, and which might well be considered the saddest abode in the world. What misery they had to endure in this frightful solitude. They were forced to do the hardest work, not being able to have anyone to wait upon them. This unfortunate merchant's sons were compelled to divide the servants' duties amongst them, as well as to exert themselves in every way that people must do who have to earn their livelihood in the country. The daughters, for their part, had sufficient employment. Like the poor peasant girls, they found themselves obliged to employ their delicate hands in all the labors of rural life. Wearing nothing but woolen dresses, having nothing to gratify their vanity, existing upon what the land could give them, limited to common necessaries, but still retaining a refined and dainty taste, these girls incessantly regretted the city and its attractions. The recollection, even of their younger days, passed so rapidly in a round of mirth and pleasure was their greatest torment. The youngest girl, however, displayed greater perseverance and firmness in their misfortune. She bore her lot cheerfully and with a strength of mind much beyond her years. Not but what, at first, she was truly melancholy. Alas, who would not have felt such misfortunes? But after deploring her father's ruin, could she do better than resume her former gaiety 
make up her mind to the position she was placed in and forget a world which she and her family had found so ungrateful and the friendship of which she was so fully persuaded was not to be relied upon in the time of adversity. Anxious to console herself and her brothers by her amiable disposition and sprightliness, there was nothing she did not do to amuse them. The merchant had spared no cost at her education, nor in that of her sisters. At this sad period she derived all the advantage from it she desired. As she could play exceedingly well upon various instruments and sing to them charmingly, she asked her sisters to follow her example, but her cheerfulness and patience only made them more miserable. These girls, who were so inconsolable in their ill fortune, thought their youngest sister showed a poor and mean spirit, and even silliness, to be so merry in the state it had pleased Providence to reduce them to. How happy she is, said the eldest. She was intended for such coarse occupations, with such low notions, what would she have done in the world? Such remarks were unjust. This young person was much more fitted to shine in society than either of them. She was a perfectly beautiful young creature. Her good temper rendered her adorable. A generous and tender heart was visible in all her words and actions. Quite as much alive to the verses that had just overwhelmed her family as any of her sisters, by a strength of mind, she concealed her sorrow and rose superior to her misfortunes. So much firmness was considered to be insensibility, but one can easily appeal from a judgment pronounced by jealousy. Every intelligent person who saw her in her true light was eager to give her the preference over her sister's. In the midst of her greatest splendor, although distinguished by her merit, she was so handsome that she was called the beauty. Known by this name only, what more is required to increase the jealousy and hatred of her sisters? Her charms and the general esteem in which she was held might have induced her to hope for a much more advantageous establishment than her sisters but feeling only for her father's misfortunes, far from retarding his departure from the city in which she had enjoyed so much pleasure, she did all she could to expedite it. This young girl was as contented in their solitude as she had been in the midst of the world. To amuse herself in her hours of relaxation, she would dress her hair with flowers, and like the shepherdess of former times, forgetting in a rural life all that had most gratified her in the height of opulence, every day brought to her some new innocent pleasure. Two years had already passed, and the family became accustomed to a country life, when a hope of returning prosperity arrived to discompose their tranquility. 
the father received news that one of his vessels that he thought was lost had safely arrived in port, richly laden. His informant said it. They feared the factors would take advantage of his absence and sell the cargo at a low price and by this fraud make a great profit at his expense. He imparted these tidings to his children, who did not doubt for an instant, but that they should soon be enabled to return from exile. The girls, much more impatient than the boys, thinking it was unnecessary to wait for more certain proof, were anxious to set out instantly and to leave everything behind them. But the father, who was more prudent, begged them to moderate their delight. However important he was to his family at a time when the labors of the field could not be interrupted without great loss, he determined to leave his sons to get in the harvest, and that he would set upon his long journey. His daughters, with the exception of the youngest, expected they would soon be restored to their former opulence. They fancied that even if their father's property would not be considerable enough to settle them in a great metropolis, their native place, he would at least have sufficient for them to live in a less expensive city. They trusted they should find good society there, attract admirers, and profit by the first offer that might be made to them. Scarcely remembering the troubles they had undergone for the last two years, believing themselves to be already, as by a miracle, removed from poverty into the lap of plenty, they ventured, but retirement had not cured them of the taste for luxury and display to overwhelm their father with foolish commissions. They requested him to make purchases of jewelry, attire, and headdresses. Each endeavored to outdo the other in her demands, so that the sum total of their father's supposed fortune would not have been sufficient to satisfy them. Beauty, who was not the slave of ambition, and who always acted with prudence, saw directly that if he executed her sister's commissions, it would be useless for her to ask for anything. But the father, astonished at her silence, said, interrupting his insatiable daughters, Well, beauty, dost thou not desire anything? What shall I bring thee? What dost thou wish for? Speak freely. My dear Papa, replied the amiable girl, embracing him affectionately, I wish for one thing more precious than all the ornaments my sisters have asked you for. I have limited my desires to it, and shall be only too happy if they can be fulfilled. It is the gratification of seeing you return in perfect health. This answer was so unmistakably disinterested that it covered the others with shame and confusion. They were so angry that one of them, answering for the rest, said with bitterness, This child gives herself great airs 
and fancies that she will distinguish herself by these affected heroics. Surely nothing can be more ridiculous. But the father, touched by her expressions, could not help but show his delight at them, appreciating too the feeling which induced her to ask nothing for herself. He begged she would choose something, and to allay the ill will that his other daughters had towards her, he observed to her that such indifference to dress was not natural at her age, that there was a time for everything. Very well, my dear father, said she, since you desire me to make some request, I beg you will bring me a rose. I love that flower passionately. And since I have lived in this desert, I have not had the pleasure of seeing one. This was to obey her father, and at the same time avoid putting him to any expense for her. At length the day arrived that this good old man was compelled to leave his family. He traveled as fast as he could to the great city which the prospect of a new fortune recalled him but he did not with the benefits he had hoped for. His vessel had certainly arrived, but his partners, believing him to be dead, had taken possession of it, and all the cargo had been disposed of. Thus, instead of entering into the full and peaceable possession of which belonged to him, he was compelled to encounter all sorts of chicanery in the pursuit of his rights. He overcame them, but after more than six months of trouble and expense, he was not any richer than he was before. His debtors had become insolvent, and he could hardly defray his own costs. Thus terminated this dream of riches. To add to his disagreeables, he was obliged, on the score of the economy, to start on his homeward journey at the most inconvenient time and in the most frightful weather. Exposed on the road to the piercing blast, he thought he should die with fatigue. But when he found himself within a few miles of his house, which he did not reckon upon leaving for such false hopes on which beauty had shown her sense and mistrusting, his strength returned to him. It would be some hours before he could cross the forest. It was late, but he wished to continue his journey. He was benighted, suffering from intense cold, buried, one might say, in the snow with his horse, not knowing which way to bend his steps. He thought his last hour had come. No hut in his road, although the forest was filled with them. A tree hollowed by age, was the best shelter he could find, and only too happy was he to hide himself in it. This tree protecting him from the cold was the means of saving his life, and the horse, a little distance from his master, perceiving another hollow tree, was led by instinct to take shelter in that. The night, in such a situation, appeared to him to be never-ending. Furthermore, he was famished, frightened at the roaring of the wild beasts that were constantly passing by him. 
Could he be at peace for an instant? His trouble and anxiety did not end with the night. He had no sooner the pleasure of seeing daylight than his distress was greater. The ground appeared so extraordinarily covered with snow, no road could be found, no track was to be seen. It was only after great fatigue and frequent falls that he succeeded in discovering something like a path upon which he could keep his footing. Chapter 2 The Palace of the Beast Proceeding without knowing in which direction, chance led him into the avenue of a beautiful castle which the snow seemed to have respected. It consisted of four rows of orange trees laden with flowers and fruit. Statues were seen here and there, regardless of order or symmetry. Some were in the middle of the road, others among the trees, all after the strangest fashion. They were the size of life and had the color of human beings in different attitudes and in various dresses the greatest number representing warriors. Arriving at the first courtyard, he perceived a great many more statues. He was suffering so much from cold that he could not stop to examine them. In a gate staircase with balusters of chased gold first presented itself to his sight. He passed through several magnificently furnished rooms. A gentle warmth which he breathed in them renovated him. He needed food, but to whom could he apply? This large and magnificent edifice appeared to be inhabited only by statues. A profound silence reigned throughout it. Nevertheless, it had the air of an old place that had been deserted. The halls, the rooms, the galleries were all open. No living thing appeared to be in this charming place. Weary of wandering over this vast dwelling, he stopped in a saloon, wherein was a large fire. Presuming that it was prepared for someone who would not be long in appearing, he drew near the fireplace to warm himself. But no one came. Seated on a sofa near the fire, a sweet sleep closed his eyelids and left him no longer in a condition to observe the entrance of anyone. Fatigue induced him to sleep. Hunger awoke him. He had been suffering from it for the last 24 hours. The exercise that he had taken ever since he had been in this palace increased his appetite. When he awoke and opened his eyes, he was astonished to see a table elegantly laid. A light repast would have not satisfied him, but the viands, magnificently dressed, invited him to eat of everything. His first care was to utter in a loud voice his thanks to those from whom he received so much kindness, and then he resolved to wait quietly 
till it pleased his host to make himself known to him. As fatigue caused him to sleep before his repast, so did the food produce the same effect, and his repose was longer and more powerful. In fact, this second time he slept for at least four hours. Upon awakening, in the place of the first table he saw another porphyry, upon which some kind of hand had set out a collation consisting of cakes, preserved fruits, and liqueurs. This was likewise for his use. Profiting, therefore, by the kindness shown to him, he partook of everything that suited his appetite, his taste, and his fancy. Finding at length no one to speak to, or to inform him whether this palace was inhabited by a man or by a god, fear began to take possession of him. He was naturally timid. He resolved, therefore, to repass through all the apartments and overwhelm with thanks the genius to whom he was indebted for so much kindness and the most respectful manner solicited him to appear. All his attentions were useless. No appearance of servants, no result by which he could ascertain that the palace was inhabited. Thinking seriously of what he should do, he began to fancy, for what reasons he could not imagine, that some good spirit had made this mansion a present to him, with all the riches that it contained. This idea seemed like inspiration. Without further delay, making a new inspection of it, he took possession of all the treasures he could find. More than this, he settled in his own mind what share of it he should allow to each of his children and selected the apartments which would particularly suit them, enjoying the delight beforehand which his journey would afford them. He entered the garden, where in spite of the severity of the winter, the rarest flowers were exhaling the most delicious perfume in the mildest and purest air. Birds of all kinds, blending their songs with the confused noise of the waters, made an agreeable harmony. The old man, in ecstasies at such wonder, said to himself, My daughters will not, I think find it very difficult to accustom themselves to this delicious abode. I cannot believe that they will regret or that they will prefer the city to this mansion. Let me set out directly, cried he, in a transport of joy, rather uncommon for him. I shall increase my happiness in witnessing theirs. I will take possession at once. Upon entering this charming castle, he had taken care, notwithstanding he was nearly perished, to unbridle his horse and let him wend his way to a stable which he had observed in the forecourt. An alley, ornamented by palisades formed by rose bushes in full bloom, led to it. He had never seen such lovely roses. Their perfume reminded him that he had promised to give beauty a rose. 
He picked one and was about to gather enough to make half a dozen bouquets when a most frightful noise made him turn around. He was terribly alarmed upon perceiving at his side a horrible beast, which, with an air of fury, laid upon his neck a kind of trunk resembling an elephant, and said with a terrific voice, Who gave thee permission to gather my roses? Is it not enough that I kindly allowed thee to remain in my palace? Instead of feeling grateful, rash man, I find thee stealing my flowers. Thy insolence shall not remain unpunished. The good man, already too much overpowered by the unexpected appearance of this monster, thought he should die of fright at these words, and quickly threw away the fatal rose. Ah, my lord, said he, prostrating himself before him, have mercy on me. I am not ungrateful. Penetrated by all your kindness, I did not imagine that so slight a liberty could possibly have offended you. The monster very angrily replied, Hold thy tongue, thou foolish talker. I care not for thy flattery, nor for the titles thou bestowest on me. I am not my lord. I am the beast, and thou shalt not escape the death thou deservest. The merchant, dismayed at so cruel a sentence, and thinking that submission was the only means to preserve his life, said in a truly affecting manner that the rose he had dared take was for one of his daughters, called Beauty. Then, whether he hoped to escape from death or to induce his enemy to feel for him, he related to him all his misfortunes. He told him the object of his journey and did not omit to dwell in the little present he was bound to give beauty, adding that was the only thing she had asked for, while the riches of a king would hardly have sufficed to satisfy the wishes of his other daughters, and so came to the opportunity which had offered itself to satisfy the modest desire of beauty, and his belief that he could have done so without any unpleasant consequences, asking pardon, moreover, for his involuntary fault. The beast considered for a moment, then speaking in a milder tone, he said to him, I will pardon thee, but upon condition that thou wilt give me one of thy daughters, I require someone to repair this fault. Just heaven, replied the merchant, how can I keep my word? Could I be so inhuman as to save my own life at the expense of one of my children's? Under what pretext could I bring her here? There must be no pretext, interrupted the beast. I expect that whichever daughter you bring here, she will come willingly, or I will not have either of them. Go, see if there be not one amongst them sufficiently courageous and loving thee enough to sacrifice herself to save thy life. Thou appearest to be an honest man, Give me thy word of honor to return in a month, and thou can decide to bring one of them back with thee. 
she will remain here, and thou wilt return home. If thou cannot do so, promise me to return hither alone, after bidding them farewell forever, for thou wilt belong to me. Do not fancy, continued the monster, grinding his teeth, that by merely agreeing to my proposition, thou wilt be saved. I warn thee, if thou thinkest so to escape me, I will seek for thee, and destroy thee and thy race, although a hundred thousand men appear to defend thee. The good man, although quite convinced that he should vainly put to proof the devotion of his daughters, accepted, nevertheless, the monstrous proposition. He promised to return to him at the time named, and to give himself up to his sad fate without rendering it necessary for the beast to seek for him. After this assurance, he thought himself at liberty to retire and take leave of the beast, whose presence was most distressing to him. The respite was but brief, yet he feared he might revoke it. He expressed his anxiety to depart, but the beast told him he should not do so till the following day. Thou wilt find, said he, a horse ready at break of day. He will carry thee home quickly. Adieu. Go to supper and wait my orders. The poor man, more dead than alive, returned to the saloon in which he had feasted so heartily. Before a large fire, his supper, already laid, invited him to sit and enjoy it. The delicacy and richness of the dishes had no longer, however, the temptation for him. Overwhelmed by his grief, he would not have seated himself at the table, but that he feared that the beast was concealed somewhere and observing him, and that he would excite his anger by any slight of his bounty. To avoid further disaster, he made a momentary truce with his grief, and, as well as his afflicted heart would permit, he tasted in turn the various dishes. At the end of the repast, a great noise was heard in the adjoining apartment, and he did not doubt that it was the formidable host. As he could not manage to avoid his presence, he tried to recover from the alarm which this sudden noise had caused him. At the same moment, the beast who appeared asked him abruptly if he had made a good supper. The good man replied in a modest and timid tone that he had, thanks to his attention, eaten heartily. Promise me, replied the monster, to remember your word to me, and to keep it as a man of honor in bringing me one of your daughters. The old man, who was not much entertained with his conversation, swore to him that he would fulfill what he had promised and return in a month alone or with one of his daughters, as he would find one who loved him sufficiently to follow him on the conditions he must propose to her. I warn thee again, said the beast, to take care not to deceive her 
as to the sacrifice which thou must exact from her, or the danger she will incur. Paint to her my face such as it is. Let her know what she is about to do. Above all, let her be firm in her resolution. Let her be firm in her resolution. There will be no time for reflection when thou shalt have brought her hither. There must be no drawing back. Thou wilt be equally lost without obtaining for her the liberty to return. The merchant, who was overcome at this discourse, reiterated his promise to conform to all that was prescribed to him. The monster, satisfied with this answer, ordered him to retire to rest and not to rise till he should see the sun and hear a golden bell. Thou wilt breakfast before setting out, said he again, and thou mayest take a rose with thee for beauty. The horse which shall bear thee will be ready in the courtyard. I reckon on seeing thee again in a month, if thou art an honest man. If thou failest in thy word, I shall pay thee a visit. The good man, for fear of prolonging a conversation already too painful for him, made a profound reverence to the beast, who told him again not to be anxious respecting the road by which he should return, as at that time appointed, the same horse which he would mount the next morning would be found at his gate, and would suffice for his daughter and himself. However little disposition the old man felt for sleep, he dared not disobey the orders he had received. Obliged to lie down, he did not rise till the sun began to illumine the chamber. His breakfast was soon dispatched, and he then descended into the garden to gather the rose which the beast had ordered him to take to beauty. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.